policy prescriptions for crisis-hit developing countries known as the Washington Consensus have boosted prosperity in Asia and beyond but also have been criticized for negatively affecting manufacturing jobs and the labor force in developed countries. In this podcast, Jenny Gordon, Honorary Professor at the Center for Social Research and Methods at the Australian National University, explains the principles and limitations of the Washington Consensus and how countries can approach them effectively moving forward. Hi, Professor Gordon. Welcome to Asia's Developing Future. To start things off, can you explain what the Washington Consensus is and why it was introduced in the 1980s? So the Washington Consensus was a statistical observation that was made by that countries that followed a set of principles, there's 10 principles, tended to develop well. The principles are open trade, open markets for trade and capital. You get the capital and the the knowledge coming in and you can apply that to labour that is, um, there's too much labour in agriculture and you want to create jobs for it so it can release the labour from agriculture. Agriculture can get more productive and so on. The other principles were around fiscal stability. It's been painted as around fiscal austerity, but it's actually about fiscal stability, making sure that you raise revenue at the same time as you're spending and that your spending is well targeted to building human capital, building infrastructure and the things you need for a developing economy. And so it was a set of 10 principles that sort of laid out how to make markets work well. And they're actually highly successful in many places. Was it always successful? other places didn't have the governance in place to be able to deliver on those, in particular on the fiscal side. So they didn't have what we call macroeconomic stability. And so you saw excessive printing of money because they weren't raising sufficient taxes to fund expenditure. And that had impacts on inflation, which had impacts on the exchange rate. And those things deterred investors from investing. So they weren't getting the capital flows that they needed to be able to kickstart development. And so it was an interesting set of principles and the World Bank and the IMF and other sort of development banks pursued these principles, sometimes probably a little too too vigorously, but overall they worked quite well until they didn't anymore. What happened as developing countries in Asia and the Pacific opened up and carried out market-led reform in the 1990s? It worked well for growth in Asia and growth in a number of other countries around the region. When China joined the WTO, China um, expand exports because it was sort of an invest and then export to be able to buy the imports you need kind of model. Once China expanded, you really had a lot of manufacturing industry moving to China. And so this was seen as hollowing out manufacturing jobs in a lot of the developed economies. And this is one of the challenges with globalization, while you improved income equality across the world because you saw places that had a lot of people living in poverty do well and bring enormous shares out of their population out of poverty, which is a real success story, you actually saw the sort of hollowing out of what we call sort of middle-class jobs in the developed economies. These jobs were the jobs that absorbed workers who didn't necessarily have to have a very high level of education, and they were often unionized and quite well paid. Economists were a bit 
naive and they assumed that people would move to where the jobs were and that retraining would somehow magically make people who had been in a very good, solid, secure, reasonably well-paid job suddenly be willing to do something in a much lower paid work environment. So it was a consequence of this shift of lower paid jobs to countries like China, who of course now are starting to see wage rises as a result of their development. Was this outcome expected? It has destabilized the support for open markets. So what's happened is that the the 10 principles ignored these kinds of effects. They didn't see them coming and they should have because we know that markets, they don't care who gets rewarded. Markets don't come with value judgments about whether something is fair. Markets won't deliver inclusive growth. You actually have to have government policy to ensure that growth is inclusive. And so you have to have complementary policies to redistribute if you're going to to let the market do the the kind of the allocation mechanism. I see. And the other things that we saw was with the concentration of power, that firms, big business had more influence. The deregulation agenda took off, not always to the benefit of consumers. You had a lot of pollution going on. You've had a race to the bottom in terms of corporate taxation as countries compete more for where companies book their profits than compete for where the economic activity actually happens. It might create government revenue, but doesn't necessarily create jobs. There's all these problems that we need to address with that sort of the 10 principles of the Washington consensus. So we're not saying throw them out because they're wrong. We're saying you need to supplement them with some additional principles to actually make markets and this kind of globalization work to bring a whole bunch of other countries into the middle class, the middle income category, and then hopefully move from middle income into high income, which is what we want to see in terms of development pathways. Are there other externalities that the old consensus overlooked? Well, it really overlooked both the social impacts, which requires domestic governments to take that on, but it also overlooked a lot of the environmental impacts. Some countries have quite strong environmental laws. Similarly, some countries have quite strong labor laws that try and protect workers and protect the environment. We've seen trying to put these in trade agreements and uh, and other ways of imposing them. So what we have suggested is that because these impacts happen at the country level, but they're caused by multinational economic activity in a country and domestic industries as well. We needed a supporting environment to say they should pay for the environmental damage that they cause and that this should be globally imposed rather than expecting countries to actually impose these kinds of regulations themselves. And part of this is about finding standardized measures of what the consequences are, whether it's how do you ensure that they don't pollute air. Carbon emissions is obviously a big one, but also water pollution, rubbish disposal, pollution in waterways, noise pollution, dust pollution, things like this, and actually kind of standardize those and say, okay, this would be the cost of mitigating those. We're going to tax you that at a global level, redistribute that money back to the country that suffered the harm. And to the extent to which these are global problems like carbon, you could actually have that become a major source of funding for the loss and damage funds that we're struggling to fund at the moment. The United States National Security Advisor recently described the industry policy inherent in the Inflation Reduction Act as the new Washington consensus. On the other hand, an issue paper released by Think7 calls for a revised Washington consensus. What are the main differences in the approaches? 
the new Washington consensus is quite interesting because we'd already termed the revised Washington consensus in the in the issues paper when Jake Sullivan labelled it the new Washington consensus. The big difference is that their Washington consensus is let's do industry policy as the way of development. So let's protect our industries and subsidise the things that we want to happen. Now, there's nothing wrong with industry policy per se, except you need to be really careful that you don't end up with a bunch of unproductive industries. You also need to be really careful that you're not damaging your consumers and other industries that aren't getting the subsidies If you uh, have to generate a whole bunch of tax revenue to pay for industry policy, you have an opportunity cost of what uh, what those taxes cost. So in many ways, while industry policy can be a good tool, it comes with lots of dangers. It's easier for the United States to do something like this because it can fund its budget deficit reasonably easily, but other countries can't follow suit. So this is not a new Washington consensus in the sense that this is a good model for other countries to follow. So what we were trying to do is say, don't throw the Baby out with the bathwater on the Washington Consensus 10 principles, but address the problems that are created by the way markets fundamentally operate and end up making the distribution of income worse, encouraging a race to the bottom in terms of regulations around pollution or compensation for governments about pollution or compensation for governments for all the services that they provide because of the fact that they're trying to avoid paying any corporate taxes in that country where they're operating. So it's really a totally different way of thinking about the guidelines of how you should develop and what is going to be a sustainable development pathway. What should G7 and G20 countries do to address inclusive growth moving forward? Well, the T7 was a real opportunity to say to G7 countries to get good global policies and to rescue where we're heading with the sort of superpower competition that's going on from uh, eroding sort of international trade rules. And the things that have actually provided prosperity to so many was to say, well, you guys be the leaders, take an approach that shows how you can make markets work better in your own economies, look after those who are negatively impacted by investing in them so they're getting opportunities to thrive. And that's the first bit. And then cooperating on global international measurement systems of how you measure the harms from pollution and hence how would you price or tax international corporations. And hopefully if you're taxing international corporations, they would then argue that you should tax domestic corporations the same way to level the playing field to compensate countries for those damages that are done. And the last bit that I haven't mentioned yet was also on the resource rent front. And so big entities will try and negotiate down how much they have to pay in resource rents. And again, having some kind of agreed measured of what that resource rent should be worth would be another thing that the G7 could work with G20 countries to actually implement. This has been Asia's Developing Future. Brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute. For more information about us, visit adbi.org.